0: Uh, I had this dream last night that I I finished, I watched Zootopia finally for the first time last night, and at the end of it, I had this dream last night that I was a little animal and I was a cop and I was trying to arrest people. (laughs) But I only had paws, so I'm like, put them up. How are you supposed to like pull out the cuffs and stuff when you got paws? So hard. I actually wore pants in first service, and I'm like, this is too much, so no I didn't wear shoes (laughs) I'm trying to lose all the heat I can in all the ways I can yeah you guys don't know this but the way the sun hits these windows back here it is literally like an oven right here so last service John's playing bass and he's all he's all (laughs) it's great it's great Uh, I have two announcements to tell you about to begin with. Uh, The first one is just for your information... Uh, people have been asking about you know, what's, what's happening with Hurricane Harvey, what are we doing, and things like that. And so I have a friend who has lots of family in Texas, and so I was talking to him about you know, what is their church doing to, to alleviate some of the suffering and stuff. And right now, they're, they're actually kind of in a holding pattern to wait and see some of the things that need to take place because the water's still receding. I mean, there's obviously the things of you know, going in and getting people some food and shelter and stuff like that. Uh, and so what he said is one of the best things to do right now is actually work with Samaritan's Purse. Uh, if you give to them, they're going in and getting people food and lodging, making some some things taken care of. So he goes, that's the best place. And he says, and Samaritan's Purse actually works with his parents' church, which is there. And, and he said, so they actually work through them. If you are somebody who is like really like, but I need to go there and I want to help, I could probably also get you set up uh, to get you a room to stay while you're there helping out. Part of the issue is that most of the refineries for fuel are in Houston and they've all been shut down. And so a lot of people can get into the flooded areas, but there's no gasoline to fill up their cars to get back out because Texas is ginormous. So that that's kind of some of the issues they're running into right now. So maybe uh, keep in prayer. You know, how, how to help and reach these people. And then if you want a good organization to give to, uh, give to Samaritan's Purse as they go in and help. So is that, does that help? Okay, yeah. And so and we're still trying to see on the backside, you know, what can we do in the end to actually make a greater impact. So there's that. Uh, second thing is if you haven't heard, we are doing a work day today. Yes, we want to see how many of you will pass out. Uh, so we have, we have a certain number of projects uh, to do. And right after this service, if you would like to, hop in your car, drive over. There's, right here on, on the communion tables, there's a little thing gives you the address right here. And then gives you a list of things to do. We're also asking you guys to bring, uh, like, some desserts to share. Because we're going we're gonna to make the totally healthy meal for you of hot dogs. Help you keep going, right? And uh, if you would, bring some drinks and maybe if you want to sit down, not in the dirt, lawn chair, something like that. So there's a couple uh, canopies. If you want to be in a canopy, you can do that too. But that's right after uh, the service to, uh, Right this morning. Each service, we're just encouraging them to go over and start working. I am really hoping by the time third service is over and I actually get there, it's all done. I'd be like, praise the Lord. God is good. <laughs> but I know that's not going to be the case. So I will get there and have to work. So to. I've got I've got work boots and pants. I'm going to put back on as I go over there to work. So uh, it's right in these. So right after the service, you can head over there and work. And I think that's what I got. If you are new, welcome to Element. There are Bibles in the back. Uh, if you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to ask one another to go deeper into what we're talking about as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really hoping the video is going to shoot from here up today. Because i got these white things, which are going to throw off the white contrast. Um, the... Why don't you stay with me? We're God's word. We'll go in here. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. And it says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who simply trust you. Uh, for who you have called us to be and who you have revealed yourself to be. And that we would live and walk understanding your goodness as it has been expressed to us. And we would put our great hope in who you are. And that we would live out in this world in a way that people would know your goodness. uh, Even in the midst of 100 degree heat. Amen. Have a seat. (laughs) So this is our second week of our new shorter series on the book of Ruth. Uh, I call it a short series. For us, that's 13 weeks. You go to a lot of churches, that's a long series. But... Kind of how we roll, so it's a short series. Uh, last week we looked at God's providence in what the country of Moab represented to the Israelite people. Today we're going to talk about identity and how these things kind of come together. Uh, the book of Ruth has connections to almost every other book in the Bible that comes before it. Uh, not just because the scriptures are all tied together, but Ruth specifically and uniquely will show the providence the redemption of God. And I'm going to show you kind of how this works. In the book of Genesis, uh, you have Ruth is a story that's kind of like... Genesis. Ruth is a story about a family who is destined to become great. Genesis will follow a guy and his family from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob who becomes who becomes Israel from the first verse we read today, to Israel's 12 sons. When God shows up, he calls Abraham to a journey. Leave the pagan place where you are. Follow me to where I will lead you. A lot of the same words that are used for Abraham leaving this place will also be used of Ruth leaving the place of the Moabites. It is seen by many Hebrew scholars as a way for Ruth to right some of the the wrongs that preceded it. The Jewish Publication Society's commentary actually says to redeem the things that went Awry in Genesis and the book of Leviticus which I know you all read in your spare time for fun okay uh, Ruth lives out many of the prescriptions in the book of Leviticus especially the idea of how to treat strangers and foreigners in your midst Ruth will devote herself to her mother-in-law while her mother-in-law is in the country of Moab and then later a guy named Boaz will devote himself to Ruth while Ruth is in a foreign country called Israel. You get to the book of Deuteronomy, another book I know you all read for fun. Uh, In this book, it tells you how to love strangers in your midst, which I think is something we could all learn from today. But in this, you'll also see laws that are prescribed, and Ruth and Boaz have to navigate this to bring Ruth into community, and they also have to navigate some other laws in order to get married. Then you get to like the book of Judges. The book of Judges is right before the book of Ruth. You see everybody doing their own thing, and this kind of leads into the book of Ruth, because the birth of Ruth starts off with everybody doing their own thing and how God is going to bring something good again through it. Right after the book of Ruth, you get to 1 and 2 Samuel. In 1 and 2 Samuel, it's this idea of how God moves forward to get to this place of King David becoming king over Israel. Ruth is the precursor to that that leads into it. You even have another book. It's called Esther. And Esther is is another woman in the Bible that a book of the Bible is named after. There's only two women in in the whole Bible that a books named after them. It's Ruth and Esther. Both have female heroines, but they're completely opposite from each other. Like Ruth is poor but mature. She's from a foreign country. She will marry an Israelite. She will have a child that will eventually lead to Israel's future king. On the other hand, Esther, she is a young Jewish virgin girl who marries a foreign king in a foreign land. And if she ever has children, we don't even know because we do not have them listed. But they relate because they show the range of these women's lives. So open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. I want you to understand at the outset how connected Ruth is to the rest of the scriptures. There are some people who think it sits out on its own, alone. It does not. It comes in the midst of this entire story. It's deeply connected. And this is important so we can understand identity and providence and redemption and what God will continue to do as he writes our story in his greater story. Uh, You see where Ruth starts and where she becomes. We're going to go Ruth 1, 1 through 5 today. We're going to read it, then we'll talk about it. Ruth 1 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the first five verses, you see a lot of sadness there, but there's actually a lot more that's taking place that we don't really see because we're not from this Jewish culture. So let me break this down a little bit so you can understand identity, and then we'll go somewhere with it. So the first thing you see is this thing called Bethlehem. It says there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem. Almost every time famine is specifically mentioned in the scriptures, it's this idea of its referencing judgment from God. Uh, Ruth, again, starts at the end of Judges where everybody is doing their own thing. So it kind of looks like this is a judgment. A famine coming this way had that idea. So the story starts in Bethlehem. And I told you last week that Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread. That's its high name. Its identity was in its abundance. And so in the house of bread, there is no bread. It's like irony. It's like living in Napa and there's no wine. Or living at the North Pole and there's no ice. We're living in Russia, and there's no vodka, right? It, that's the subtle irony of the name. In the house of bread, they are starving to death because there is no bread. God has withheld his provision. And it lets you know that bread ultimately does not come from the store or Weber's or Oral wheat or Costco. It comes from the hand of God. Then you get to Elimelech. The name of the man was Elimelech. So you have this guy, he makes a decision that he is going to leave the house of bread because of the famine, and he's going to go to a place called Moab. And this is where you see that the famine might be a judgment from God because Moab is only about 50 miles away from Bethlehem. So the famine is either very localized or it's not as bad as a that thinks it is and he just lives his life in fear. There's actually a lot of speculation on that. He's like a lot of people today who look around and like, oh my goodness, I've messed up my house or my yard or my city or my state and then they look for somewhere else to move, Not realizing it's the sin in their own life who has messed up all of these things, and they want to go somewhere else, but they go somewhere else, and they just take their sin along with them because they haven't learned from their mistakes. I have a friend who lives in Texas, not the one I was talking about earlier, and he's not in the middle of all this stuff, but, but he hates it when Californians move to Texas. He's like, California, you guys are so crazy. You guys make all these dumb laws, and it's like ruining your economy, and then you ruin your economy, and then you want to move to Texas because we have jobs, and we got cheap houses, and you move here, and you're messing up my state. He's like, stop moving to Texas. And I said, you must welcome the foreigners in your midst. And he's not very happy about that. But Moab is the place where God's people were not meant to dwell. And we talked about this last week. Moab is a tribe and a group of people who were, came about because of incest. But that whole idea of those weird sexual things have never left them. That's, they're still involved in that. They're an immoral people. And they don't worship God. They worship false gods. So Elimelech moves his family to a place where there are no believers, not to be a missionary, but to participate in the culture in a way that wasn't salt and light, that he wasn't going to be a witness of who God is. And he goes there, not just to do that, but to take from them what he could. Sounds a lot like people today. Now, Elimelech, his name that his parents gave him, his identity, his name means, My God is King. My God is King. And it starts off in the book of Ruth to let you know that this is what people were supposed to do, but it's not how people were actually living. So the guy whose name means, my God is king, was living in the house of bread, and he leaves the house of bread to go live in a place like God was not his king. You're supposed to see these things, and I know we don't, that's why I'm explaining it to you. You're welcome. So Elamalek goes, and he lives there, sees hard times, and he runs for his life. In the end, his family is going to be destroyed because of this. Then you have Naomi, the name of his wife, Naomi. Now, Naomi, her name means pleasant and sweet we're going to talk more about this over the next couple of weeks but naomi is going to be so devastated by loss in her life that she will say don't call me naomi anymore you're going to call me bitter because i am a bitter person because of what god has done to me god has done terrible things to me and if you look there's a lot of people today who talk like this as well they say oh god is so horrible it's not my fault for living in a horrible place doing horrible things with horrible people it's god's fault for letting me do it how dare he a lot of people like that today. Uh, then you have Melon and Killian. His two sons from Melon and Killian. I know their name sounds like a rap hip-hop duo. Like, girl, you know it's true. That's why they lip-sync, right? So, anyway, they're not. They're not. Someone said they sound like UFC fighters. They're not. They're not. Uh, don't name your kids this because their names actually mean something to the effect of sick And wasting away, which means dying, Driscoll said. It's like saying, "Here are my boys: Asian bird flu pandemic and walking pneumonia." So don't name your kids that. Even if you're like totally into D and D and you think it sounds really cool, don't do it because you don't know anything about the boys except they married Moabite women and they died. So maybe the name kind of fits. Uh, then you got the Ephraithites. The Ephraethites. They were Ephraethites from Bethlehem. Now, now Ephraethite, this is the original name for the city of Bethlehem. It comes from this guy named Ephraim, who is one of Joseph's sons, who we talked about last week. Uh, he becomes one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And at the end of Jacob's life, the guy who will become Israel, he are these little boys' grandfather. And he will show up and he will put his hands on these boys to bless them to call them into who they were meant to be but what he does in doing it is he switches the older for the younger he makes this choice that the that the younger is going to get the firstborn blessing and this happens a lot in the scriptures that you see how god chooses to do things that we would never do and jacob does the same thing because he's learned from god and so in genesis 48 20 it says so he blessed them that day saying by you israel will pronounce blessing saying god make you as ephraim and manasseh This is a beautiful blessing that this grandfather says, I pray all men will be like you boys. Can you imagine as a guy growing up and having your grandfather or your father pray that over you and say that? That is huge. I think men were built for respect and dignity. And we need to learn how to give one another that. It says, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And Ephraim goes on to become one of the most powerful tribes in the country of Israel this is where he goes. And so what you see Ephraim, what his name means is fruitful. And he was very fruitful. And this eventually becomes Bethlehem, the house of bread, which was very fruitful. And you get to Orpah. It says, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. So Elimelech, as this guy, has a family entrusted to him. And he takes to this area. And he does not account for what's going to happen to his family in this area. He's short-sighted. His son essentially only has Moabite women to marry. And so when he has grandkids, those grandkids are going to be raised in a place that is not that great. And so when the text says they took Moabite wives, the original readers that hadn't known the story, they would be saddened by this. They'd be shocked by it. Eventually the dad dies. The kids don't go home. They stay there. These girls are from a culture and they worship a God called Chemosh. Uh, Chemosh, as I said, has weird sexual practices, but they also involve child sacrifice in this. But if you go back to where it all started, it's it's not really, like, you can see how that could just kind of get to there. So these girls are worshipping other gods. Uh, Orpa means neck or stiff neck, like once she gets something in her head, she will not change her mind. Anybody know a woman like that? <laughs> Element or equal opportunity. Anybody know a guy like that? Yeah, yeah, right. We, we know, we know w- what it's like. I think this is where we get boy bands and reality TV from, is stiff neck people who will not listen to reality, right? So... Anybody bring a step neck person with me today? Don't raise your hand, I'm kidding. Okay. (laughs) Then you have Ruth, okay, Ruth. And the name of the, I didn't even make an Oprah joke, you're welcome. Uh, Ruth. And the name of the other was Ruth. So you finally get to the girl that the book is actually named after, Ruth, a Moabite. Starts off worshiping false gods, but will eventually come and worship the one true God. This again is why they see her a lot like Abraham. And we're going to spend a lot of time over the next couple of months talking about Ruth, but suffice to say her name means seeing, like she was a sight to see. Some people say, Oh, Ruth, Ruth was was homely. I don't know how you know that, but the scriptures kind of show that she was quite beautiful because she has seen that it has roots in friendship, so her character was probably really good as well because those two things go together. Most scholars believe she got the name Ruth as a child because she was cute and had a great disposition. Now, it's kind of sad because Elimelech did all that he could to spare his family from death. But it was only the financial cost that he looked at. And in the end, disaster is going to come on him and his sons. Ruth 1.3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. So he moves to Moab to not die. And what happens? He dies. He dies. We don't know how. We don't know if it was God's judgment or a curse. Uh, Did he cross the freeway and not look both ways and got run over by a camel? We don't know what happened. But all of his scheming to try and stay alive couldn't make any difference. What God said, now is your time. And there's a kind of a little hope in the passage because, hey, Naomi still got her two sons. That's an okay thing. She can be taken care of. But then all of a sudden you get to verse 5. And both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. They're going to go on to live for 10 years in this place. They don't have any kids. Husbands and kids die. The family's on the brink of extinction. And what you've got to see at the beginning of Ruth is that it is at the bleakest place possible. It is the worst thing that you can imagine. Naomi buries her husband and her two sons before she ever even has grandchildren. That's how the text starts. And so a lot of people think that this is actually a story about Naomi. And not really so much about Ruth. Because the story will actually start and end with Naomi. You'll come back to her in the end. So you get her entire story in this. And there's a degree of pain in the story. I think that's really true of people's lives today. But eventually good does come back to Naomi. But it's not until she gets into a place of utter despair that probably make most of us want to shy away from her. She becomes that woman that you'd walk up to and you would say, hey, good morning. And her response would be, what's good about it? Like, you know anybody like that? Don't point them out, okay? Don't point them out. But as nice as I can say it, this is what happens when you find your identity in your circumstance. When you find your identity in the things that happen around you. And Ruth is a story about how God is going to change everything through his providence and redemption to restore things to his glory and our joy. the end of the book, as I said, we'll see Naomi return to joy but the beginning of it is very brutal and it's very hard to look at. You will see Naomi come to the place where she will live in her name again. But right now she is trying to write her own story and try and say who she herself is rather than who God says that she is. Now I want to connect this with, with you because you kind of see this throughout the scriptures that God is constantly changing us from who we are from the inside out. You will have the murderous uh, Jew Saul become the apostle Paul. You will have the loudmouth fisherman Simon become the apostle Peter. You have Abram becomes Abraham. The truth is that God can always remake us and rename us. Our our vision should be on who God is calling us to be in that identity and not upon the circumstances that are always around us. The whole idea of being remade and renamed is at the heart of God's redemption plan. It's at the heart of Israel's story. So what I want you guys to do is open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32 and I'm going to remind you of something we talked about I don't know five six years ago at this point but I want to start here because if I if I did the whole thing in Ruth right here you get the whole book and I got like 12 more weeks to go so I'm going to go here and kind of bring it together this way so you got it from from the front side of it now uh, you're going to this is a story of a guy named Jacob uh, Jacob is the guy who becomes Israel he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel but when you first meet him he is a total loser Total loser. He's run from his family, he's run from responsibility his entire life. Jacob's name, it means trickster or deceiver, someone who is always at odds with everybody else. And Jacob is always trying to deny that's who he is, but he lives like it every single day. So all these things happen in his life. And in Genesis 32, Jacob's going to find himself alone in this place. And God, and I believe it's Jesus, is going to show up and grow Jacob up into the man that God needs him to be so he can be Israel. So you got Genesis 32, verse 24. And it says, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So Jacob is at a place in his life. He's older. He could be really old at this point, and this is like a nightmare. It's, you know, you're old, you're alone, it's dark. You get up in the middle of the night to go pee again, right? And somebody jumps you from behind and starts trying to, to beat you up and wrestles with you. Fighting, if you don't, I don't recommend it, but if, if you do have to fight, fighting is exhausting. If you watch a boxing match, it's like the second round, they're hanging on each other. Because it's a, throwing five punches, and you're like, it's Not that I do it. Okay, I'm just saying. It's exhausting. Uh, Someone once said, if you're going to get in a fight, sarcastically, they say, do it like Jesus. Show up at night, jump someone from behind. It's biblical. But anyway, what you have to understand is that Jacob has been running scared his entire life. He's been running from the call that God has placed in his life. And Jesus is going to show up and remake him and rename him in this moment. God usually doesn't show up to grow us by, by giving us massages and playing you know, MP3s of, of rushing water and aromatherapy. He doesn't do that. He grows us many times through hard circumstances in our life, just like Naomi, just like Ruth, just like a lot of things that happen in our lives. And if Jacob is going to have to grow up at this point, God's going to grow him up. And he will, and when God shows up, it's usually with some hardship and some pain to make us grow into who He needs us to be. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards writes extensively on this section of Scripture of God coming and wrestling with Jacob. This is what he says. He says, The wrestling denotes the seeming opposition that God oftentimes makes to persons when seeking His blessing. When God has a design of bestowing the blessing on a person in answer to prayer, He stirs them up to be earnest in seeking, and oftentimes for a time seems not to hear and regard the request, but on the contrary seems to oppose and resist them, which is for the trial of a person's resolution, constancy, and perseverance in seeking for it. He says, essentially, that God wants Jacob and us to appreciate the blessings that he gives, to see where they come from. Many times, this means it's darkest before the dawn, and literally, in Jacob's case, that's true, because they are going to Fight until the morning, and and you might wonder about why Jonathan Edwards can say something like this. Well, Jonathan and Sarah Edwards they hoped in God, but they lost one of their daughters, probably to a disease that she caught while helping someone else with that same disease. He pastors a church for years, and then he's asked to leave because he stands up for something that's right. And so they say, oh, you've got to leave. He and his family live in the wilderness for years. And then at one point, Princeton College comes and says, will you be the president of Princeton? And he says, sure. So they show up. Just a little bit after that, he writes these words. And then he gets inoculated for smallpox and dies from the inoculation. And yet Jonathan Edwards is probably the, one of the, if not the greatest theologian that America, I think, has ever produced. And Edwards writes these words. And even after his death, his wife echoes these words. And Edward says that if God is going to bless Jacob here, he's going to bless him a lot, but he wants him to understand how sweet that blessing actually is. So they begin to wrestle all night. If Jacob's got to go home, he's going to have to deal with his crazy family and his brother and his kids and found a nation. He's got to see who God is calling him to be. So verse 25, it says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So what you have to see here is what's happening is that is that Jesus is going to display his power. So he gets down on Jacob's level and they're wrestling. It's like, oh, yeah, you're an old man, but I got you. You know, and the and rest, it's kind of like if you wrestle with a little kid, you don't walk up and be like, boom, I win. You don't do that. What do you do? You're like, oh, oh, you're so strong. Oh, you're going to give me. Oh, and that's what Jesus does. And maybe Jacob starts to get a little cocky. Oh, yeah. And so Jesus goes, boom, touches his hip and he's like, oh, my hip. I'm falling and I can't get up. You know, he's, he's down. He's down. But this is a way for Jesus to remind Jacob, you need to respect me. You need to respect me because I'm here wrestling with you. i man you up, but you have to respect me. And Jacob is going to walk with a limp limp the entire rest of his life. But I think every time he limps, he remembers that the God who could have crushed me decided to grow me up and rename me and remake me instead. He knows that God loves him. Verse 26, then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And this is Jacob learning. Okay, I'm going to hold to your promises. I'm going to do that. And verse 27, and he said to him, so Jesus says, what is your name? Now, don't you think Jesus would know who he's wrestling with? Does he just randomly show up at hell tops? Hey, you, let's go. No, he knows who he is. What you're going to see here is that he's going to reset Jacob's identity. He's going to place it where it is supposed to be. He says, what's your name? Jacob has spent his entire life running from who God called him to be, running from who he really is. He has let circumstances in his life dictate who he is and how he responds. He struggles with God because he hasn't trusted God or been okay with who God called him to be. And his running has affected every relationship in his life. Every relationship. And as long as Jacob is not trusting God for who he made him to be, he is envying everyone else. He sees what everyone else does and listens to everyone else. And he doesn't ever settle for who God made him to be. So what does he say? What's your name? And he said, Jacob. This is the first time, and Jacob has been here for chapters at this point. This is the first time in Jacob's story that he is really honest about his name and who he is. He doesn't lie. He tells the truth. He owns up to it. And what's kind of funny is as soon as he does, God changes his name. Yeah, great. Now I'm changing your name. It's great. It's great. But God finally is going to lead him into the life that he wants him to have, because Jacob starts to be honest. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Up until this point in the scriptures, God is known as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He is not the God of Jacob yet. He's not one of the patriarchs. So Jacob has not stepped into his calling. And as soon as this happens, God becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is how God is spoken of in Israel even to this day. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, Israel can mean different things. It can mean one who struggles with God and men and overcomes. That's not you overcome over God. It's with God you prevail. Some commentators believe, though, Jacob's name, up to this point, he called himself Israel Jacob, which means Jacob will prevail or Jacob will win. But now he is called Israel, El being one of the names for God, that God prevails, God wins. God is my king, like Elimelech. God is my king king and from this time forward the word israel appears in the scriptures 1,800 times plus plus either in regard to the man or in regard into the country and that tells you that god is faithful god used every circumstance in jacob's life to conform him to the person of dignity and purpose that he needed to be and this is what the book of ruth will show you this is the same thing that god does to naomi to ruth this is what god does with you and me that he grows into the people that we were meant to be The heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that everything that comes to us either comes from the hand of God or is passed through his hand. And many times instead of running from or shying away from or figuring a way out of hardship, we should ask God, how can I know you better through this? What are you trying to teach me in the midst of these things? And today, I don't know what you've gone through in your life. I don't know what you are going through. I don't know what you have let define you. And determine who you are. I don't know what name you take upon yourself and tell yourself in the wee hours of the night when no one's listening. And I don't know what happens to you. But I want to tell you, God wants to redefine you as His child. You trust Him. And your life is found in Him. He says, you are my child. That is who you are. He wants you to understand that your identity is first to be found in what He says about you. Not what other people say about you. And not what you say about you. But what He says about you. That's where identity comes from. In Ruth, you have all these identities. They're all swirling around. And God is going to reshape and remake and bring redemption through his providence to bring about exactly what he wants to see. So you have to ask yourself, what is your identity based in? Because if it's not in being a child of God, if it's not in Jesus, you're going to be thrown for a loop anytime something comes up that you don't like or don't understand or... I got a million different examples, but I can't say them. <laughs> you have to ask when circumstances come your way that make you want to react negatively, why? Why is that happening? What are you letting determine your identity? And then take a step back and remember who God calls you to be His child, His chosen one, His loved one. Just like Jacob lays his hand and he chooses the younger instead of the older for that firstborn blessing, you gotta understand, God has chosen you. And he's loved you. And he's called you into his family. And we have to stop letting circumstances dictate our reaction to everything around us. We have to understand that he is the one who determines who we are. So we trust him for that. And we walk into the life he is calling us into remembering that we are his children. This is one of the reasons we go to communion every single week. It reminds us of his body that was broken for us. That's why you break that cracker. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. So he brings us back into family again. We are remade and remade and renewed and brought in again to his family. Because God is simply that good. He takes all that we are and and remakes us into who we need to be. And we need to trust him for that process. Uh, The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you guys to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back, and if you guys need prayer, maybe today you're struggling with your identity. Maybe you're struggling with your circumstance, and it's dictating who you are and how you respond to everybody around you. You know, maybe, I don't know, I was I was hanging out with with a bunch of kids yesterday, not in a creepy way, um, hanging with a bunch of kids yesterday, and everyone's kids are so honest with some of the things that they say, and it, it's like... That looks stupid. It's like, well, this is my face. I can't do anything about it. <laughs> but, but and, and, and honestly, sometimes we say things like that. People say things that to us from, from other people. And, and we take it on ourselves and we let that redefine who we are. Oh, I, you know, my face looks stupid. You know, and, and you walk around. The, we cannot let everything else determine our identity and who we are, especially little kids. You know, we can't let that happen. We have to allow God to determine who we are. And who does he say that we are? We are his children. We were as children, and if somebody at your workplace doesn't like you, well, be nicer, one, but that doesn't determine who you are. What determines who you are is who God says that you are. This is what we must remember and understand. God determines our identity. He is the one who remakes and renames us. God knows our name. He knows who he called us to be. So we must live like that. And if you need prayer for something like that, they would love to pray with you. He has offering boxes in the sidewall in the back. Uh, We give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. We did not put food in the back this week because we want you to go work. Finish it before I get there, in the name of the Lord. Uh, Amen, (laughs) amen. right? Uh, but, But we'd encourage you to go hang out over there. And this week, you know, hopefully, spend some time with some other people and ask some questions. Ask, what determines your identity? What, what things throw you for a loop when certain things are said or not said? I know I, I have a lot of friends who, at different times in their life, Facebook determines a lot of how they feel about a lot of stuff. It's like, everybody's having fun but me. I've got to tell you, guys, nobody puts the miserable times in their life on Facebook. My life sucks. Click. Facebook. And if you do, those are the people you hide because you don't want to read it, right? It's like, ah, my life's always so much fun. Why isn't my life so much fun? Like, oh, their life is so much fun. Their life isn't so much fun. They'll get your posts and think the same thing about you. It's it's crazy. We've got to stop letting circumstances dictate who we are and let Jesus dictate who we are. His children. That's who he calls us to be. So why don't we trust him above everything else? Especially messed up people around us, because everybody's jacked up. So maybe get into conversations this week and start to talk about it. You know, what circumstances do you let define you? What things do you you let overtake who God calls you to be? And then maybe pray for one another to come back to the understanding of who Jesus is first. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us that you are a God who has rescued us, that you have sought us, that you have called us, that you have blessed us, and that you know us by name that you know us so well that you even know the amount of hairs on our head or lack thereof, depending on who it is. And yet you step in and you call us your children and you bring us back again and that's not to make us be focused upon ourselves. It makes us to be focused upon you and your goodness. Father, help us to understand what you have done So our eyes stop looking at ourselves and they become fixed upon the author and perfecter of our faith, which is you. Teach us to be a people who trust you for what you have said and what you have done and to live out this life in front of everyone so everyone would know the security that is real will be something that we begin to feel and live out, that our God has rescued and saved and will never let us go. So teach us to live in the hope of that calling, that the Lord of all the earth knows our names and has called us to himself. Have us live in that great blessing. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.